Hey everyone, thanks for listening. This podcast today is brought to you by Mattress Firm. They have all sorts of mattress brands. Head to mattressfirm.com and save 10% with the code PODCAST10. The code is only valid through May 2nd, so don't miss out. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is Dan Richer, the owner, proprietor, Pete Saiola of uh, Ratza in Jersey City. Hey, man, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Chef, here, here, here's the thing, and I, this rarely ever happens to me. Um, I was in your restaurant, about which I'd heard a ton, and everyone said, you know, um, there's this famous review that was written that says your pizzeria is the best pizza in New York, and it's in New Jersey. And Phil Rosenthal, a mutual friend, brought me to the restaurant. I was like, you got to have this. You know, he's the most enthusiastic guy in the world. And I also trust him. And he was like, you got to come. And I was like, I don't want to go to Jersey City. I got so much to do. <laughs> he's like, come to the restaurant. So we go and have a great time. And I start talking to you. And this is what rarely happens. In the middle of this conversation, I was like, oh, this guy got to be a guest on the show. Because your story and the way you think about food and your trajectory um, just is I think really inspiring. And um, I mean, you followed like a crazy dream. Yeah. And then, but then you approached it with a tremendous amount of rigor. Don't you think? Yeah, every day. Right, rigor every day. Every day. Not stopping. Not stopping. And you talk closer to the mic. So this is Dan's first podcast and i um, happy to be the first one. Um, I think I wanna get into it because people, you know, people have read about you and you've been, I mean, it's funny, you're this level of, Profile and success is probably new to you, but you've been nominated for Beard Award four times. You had a big, important restaurant before this, but I imagine it's gone into hyperspace a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. The attention surrounding it is definitely more than I've ever experienced, but we're not doing anything different. If anything, we're focusing more internally and focusing on the core of what we do a little bit more, if that's even possible. You know, I'm not, I'm not growing wildly. I have nothing to promote or anything. We're not opening 12 restaurants or yeah, You anything. don't need more people to come to the restaurant. It's sold out. We have 11 tables. Right. You know, it's, it's a tiny little pizza place that we have, we have 11 tables and I'm not, I'm not trying to build this grand, you know, empire of restaurants. We're just trying to do one thing and trying to do it really, really well every single day. Well, that's what's super inspiring to me. And that's like what the best coaches do with their team. Right, is you just go back and you run the suicides again and you practice. That's it. And it's, you know, what Gabrielle Hamilton has done with Prune, right? Is yeah. go back and just like make that. I ate there with my daughter the other night, eight tables, nine tables, and just amazing every night and simple. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to start and I want to come back to this moment um, now. But can, do you remember the first time you, you had, like, what's your first memory of pizza? Oof. Or how did pizza like come into your life as a kid? So where'd you grow up? And that's it. so I grew up in Monmouth County, New Jersey, and pizza for pretty much all Americans growing up the time that we grew up is is pizza. It's in in every it's at every birthday party, it's at every school event. It's it's just a part of our our yeah. childhood as Americans, and uh, for me it was. Pizza Village on Route 34 in Matawan, New Jersey. Awesome. I'll never, I'll never forget it. And Did you go after school a lot? After school, yeah. But even before, even before I was able to do that, you know, my 
you know, we would have pizza at least once a week. Friday night was pizza night, like all, like most Americans. And sometimes another time during the week we would have it. And it's just, it's such a, it's so ingrained in who we are as people. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, that's in our show, um, the main, you know, one of the two main characters, Bobby Axelrod, he, we were able to center him in the first episode by having him have a favorite pizzeria <laughs> because we were like everybody. Do you remember what pizzeria that was? Well, I know where we shot it, okay. but I, it's like a fictional pizzeria. Okay. Um, but we realized in the writer's room, like everybody has their home, their hometown pizza place that means something to them. Absolutely. And so, so that's the root of it. And, and then going to college, you know, I remember scrounging around for a dollar in usually in coins from the couch cushion trying to scrounge up enough to get a slice of pizza. So I'm a pizza fanatic. Like I've written about it a lot. I talk about it a lot. I mean, um, I'm an obsessed person, but I didn't make it my life. So I, I like, do you remember when you had your first like really good, like where you had pizza and it was like, wait, this is different. Well, I this thought better. I thought that was great sure. as as a kid. Um, the first time that I really <laughs> had something that was was inspiring was when I already I already owned a restaurant. It was uh, Una Pizza Napolitana, right? My favorite pizzeria of all time. Mine too. It, yeah, yours is a close second. Yeah, <laughs> that one doesn't exist anymore. But, but you know, in fairness, it doesn't exist anymore. In a yeah, it's Pizza coming. Napolitana. It's coming. Yes, it'll be back very very soon. I'll be there at the friends and family. Next Me week. too. Are you yeah, going Tuesday or I Wednesday? Tuesday. Me too. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's dude. great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I want to get to that story. So what happens? How do you... Okay, so you're a chef and own a restaurant. So the whole story starts much Well, that's what I want to get that. to. Yes, I do. So, well, all right. When did you realize food really mattered to you? Tell the whole story from... Because I know that you went from high school to Italy. So tell the whole story of how food became an important thing. Start here. Like, were you good at school? Did that matter to nah. you? I was mediocre at best. Uh, I made it through, made it through high school, went to college. I got into um, pretty much one college. I got into one of the campuses at Rutgers. It was the agricultural school called Cook College. Right. And I didn't want to have anything to do with agriculture, but it's the only place I got into. I wanted to be in New Jersey. I wanted to go to Rutgers. And uh, so I went. I was taking all these core classes about agriculture and crop rotation and sustainability and and just agriculture even though i didn't want to have anything what to did do you with think it. your life was going to be at that point i uh, worked in restaurants know, yeah so i started when i was 15 as a busboy my ah. my good friend cameron got me a job when we were 15 at a restaurant that he was a busboy at his brother was a, was a waiter there so it was really the only my my mom said to me listen you need to leave the house right now and go get a job that's funny don't come back until you have a job so I got a job, and I was a busboy. Uh, eventually, I became a waiter, and then in college, I um, I made ice cream at an awesome uh, ice cream shop in New Brunswick called Thomas Sweet. So great. So I've been in the food business all throughout my life. But uh, my senior year in college, I flew to Italy. My cousin was studying architecture in Rome, and I just I was honestly I was watching a lot of uh, Molto Mario yeah <laughs> during college yes. and with my buddy Cameron and we who went to Rutgers yeah who went to Rutgers Mario and went to Rutgers he worked at Stuff Your Face which was right next door to Thomas Sweet which is just an odd coincidence uh, but I was watching a lot of Mario Vitale my my cousin had an apartment in Rome I said you know what I want to go to I want to go to Italy I'm going to go hang out with my cousin see what happens I'm just I'm very 
I love traveling. I, I love a good adventure. And so at that time in your life, you just thought you were going on an adventure. It wasn't about it. food to you? Not at all. And had you thought that you were going to go be in... Were you... Like um, some people have a dream from when they were... Were you directionless? Was it a private dream or was it not even in your head? I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a rock star. Okay, so that's... That, this is great. Yeah. Like that's what Bon Jovi wanted and then he did that thing. Yeah. So that's what you wanted. And what, yeah. were you, what was your instrument? A guitar. And were you in a band in college? Yeah, yeah, all throughout college. What kind of music did you play? Uh, classic rock. Not that Covers I was, I was, or originals? A uh, little bit of both. Uh, but it wasn't something that I was, I was really into it. I loved doing it. But uh, that trip to Italy, my first trip, we traveled up and down all the way from Switzerland all the way to the deep south of Italy. And after that trip, I literally put my guitar down and started cooking. No. It was... So wait, what happened when you hit the ground in Italy? So you go by yourself with this one friend. My cousin. My cousin had, a, had the apartment in Rome. And um, we, just, we just traveled. We were doing a new city every day and eating the most simple... Yeah, I was 21 years old. So yeah. I, was, I didn't have a lot of money. I was just eating pasta with red sauce, gnocchi, uh, all these things that, that with all the Italian restaurants in New Jersey... And in the New York area, I had never tasted anything like this, like this food. And it was so simple. It was the simple things. I wasn't, I wasn't ex getting all the, the secondi, the meat courses, the fish. I, I was you eating. Couldn't this. afford it. I mean, no, you couldn't exactly. afford it. It was, it was an, an eight dollar pot. Well, the way that pasta. they cook the pot, the way that they deal with the pasta water there, but as opposed to twenty. This is twenty years ago, right? Twenty five years ago. They the um, in America people didn't know how to cook pasta. Yeah, I, I thought you put the sauce on top of the pasta, and not cook them together. But it, and it was it was really just the the tomato sauce, the most simple thing. I had never tasted anything that good. So I'm I'm a very curious person, and I wanted to know how like how did you, how did they get it? To That's be awesome! So right good? away, you were like, uh, now did your did your cousin understand what was happening to you? Mm, no, no, right? Because when we get in these, <laughs> I didn't even understand. Right? Okay. Right. You it just, just knew, like I have to chase this. I just need to know. Yeah. I need to understand what what this is about. Oh, I love this because you came from. This is the thing I talk about all the time. Like what happened to me was I walked into this poker club and I. The curiosity I had and fascination is what led me to, and Dave to write the movie, but also the curiosity about the, pro curiosity about the process of how would one write a movie? Would, like leading from that place of being fascinated and curious. And, and if you follow it, and then as you say, you do the work, that then like almost anything's possible. And so you start eating it. You realize I want to, quickly you realize like I want to understand it? Or after a month? As soon as I came home. How long were you there for? I was there for two weeks that trip. And? I immediately came home and started to cook. Had you cooked before? Uh, you know, when I was, as a busboy, when I was 15, I traded the chef, I traded him a guitar lesson for a lesson on how to cook eggplant parmesan. So I always, uh, you know, I always wanted to learn how to do something, uh, how, how, to, how to cook. How to handle yourself in a kitchen. Yeah. So you come back and where do you start cooking? At your dorm room, in your dorm room? No, uh, by that time I had graduated college. So I actually skipped my graduation ceremony to, to fly to Italy. To go to Italy. Yeah. So you graduated, but you didn't bother with the ceremony. Right. How'd your parents feel about the whole thing? Uh, you know, they didn't really have a choice. In hindsight, I probably should have gone to the graduation ceremony because unfortunately my mom passed away I'm like sorry. three months later. Oh, dude, I'm so sorry. So thank you. But that's that's the whole thing. Like, 
food brought my family together and it was because she was she was sick and it's something that we we all were able to gather around and looking back now and after a ton of therapy like this was the reason like she was sick she was dying and this is something that i could control and I could do and I can offer. Oh, sure. That makes complete sense. You can contribute and you could focus and lose yourself in it. Completely. Completely. Right. You were able to enter that alpha state of being like hyper present, but also gone. Exactly. Which is like that flow state. Absolutely. And so you found that happening when you started cooking. Yeah. And then you would give food to your family. You would cook for your family. And friends. And we would gather around the, the kitchen table and, and eat food and, you know, drink a lot of wine. And what were you doing to earn money then? I was uh, managing a really small restaurant in New Brunswick. So you got a restaurant job. You were like, and did you say to yourself, I'm all in on this? I'm going to go. Well, I, I had been waiting tables throughout college. And like I said, making ice cream. I, I, I've always, it was always my, my job. I was just right. in the restaurant business. And I, but I didn't take it seriously until that point. Be- before your mom was sick, was food a big deal in your house? How no, would it? You know, I, it was like, I, I was, a, I'm kind of a Jewish kid from New Jersey, you know, in in the eighties, we're not. The food wasn't super very important good. or very good at all. You know, <laughs> holidays were great, but um, the the day to day basis, it wasn't very good. Right. We did watch a lot of uh, of cooking shows when I was growing up. Like I grew up on Martin Yan, Julia Child, Jacques Pepin, and. I always had an interest. I remember when I was like 10, I got a walk for my birthday or something awesome. and, because I loved Martin Yan. Right. Well, he, him and then the, the guy, Jeffrey Smith, who ended up getting uh, arrested, right? He was like that. Wasn't that the guy the, with the beard? The frugal gourmet. The frugal I gourmet. Was... I think he got arrested. <laughs> he really? If he didn't, um, I, I misremember, but I'm pretty sure that he did. Here, if he didn't, um, cut it out of the Shelby podcast. But if he did, leave it in. I'm pretty sure he did get um, arrested, the Frugal Gourmet, for bad stuff, I think. Um, it's true, like those original Food Network chefs, like I met Ming Tsai the other day. Awesome. Yeah. The guys who were in the Food Channel in the beginning mean a lot. And so you were watching a lot of various chefs on Food Channel. All of them. Yeah. And you were like, so some part of you was like picking up what they were doing, even if you weren't um, yet fully in. Exactly. And so, would you go to restaurants with your family? Because I remember there was Sunday, for instance, we would go to Don Pepe's in Queens on Sunday nights. That was a huge big deal for us. Not really. You know, my family, it was definitely like a lower middle class type situation. We didn't really go out to eat that much. Um, If we did, it was super casual. Um, It was in college and then after college that I really started going going to restaurants as much as I could afford. I spent all of my money after college on traveling and on eating at the best restaurants that I could go to. And did you have an idea specifically of like your dream restaurant that you want to do or was your thing I'm going to become a chef and work in a restaurant? I did not want to do anything else except own my own restaurant. I knew when I came back from that first trip of Italy, I wanted to open a restaurant. I wanted to either start a restaurant or buy an existing restaurant. Um, and I worked every day in order to make that happen. And I bought a failing you restaurant. You mean you worked enough to make money? Like you mean you were consciously working 
to get yourself a bankroll to be able to make the initial investment to buy to like get in the restaurant business? You know, it wasn't really working for the investment. It was working to learn. I wanted to learn how to do it. I wanted to learn. I wanted to develop a a sense of not only the, the the actual techniques of how to cook, but also, you know, what who who am I as a cook? What do I want to put out there in the world? And uh, so I kept traveling back to Italy. I would, I would go back at least once a year, every year, which I still do. And I just wanted to develop a sense of what I wanted to do. What was your first cooking job? I worked my only cooking job. Uh, I managed a couple of restaurants here and there. Right, but so you were only cooking... You mean you were managing a restaurant and then you were only cooking on your own time? Own time and at the restaurant. I would like, you know, hop back there and... And, and teaching yourself from the Food Network and cookbooks? Is that true? I swear to God. So what, how would that work? What and, would you and do? And doing it. I, you know, I would, I would get a, a cookbook and read the cookbook. I wouldn't necessarily follow the recipes, but I would read the cookbook and study the cookbook and, and then go to farmer's markets. That was the big thing. So once I started to want to cook, I went to farmer's markets to buy the ingredients because the best ingredients are going to be at the farmer's market, and they're right. just awesome places to hang out. So going to farmer's markets, I started talking to farmers, and that's where my agricultural background comes into play. And oh, I'm like, great. holy shit, I, I, we can have a great conversation about the, the very real things about farming and agriculture because I studied it for three years. So I have this great background on sustainability and all these agricultural uh, elements that that I could actually have a conversation with uh, with a Dude, farmer. That's amazing. That like you, I mean, it's a great way life works. You picked up this knowledge, not knowing how you were going to use it, and it ended up having great utility for you. Yeah. And so you're going to these farmers markets. Now the traditional route is cooking school. Yeah. Almost everybody who wants to do the thing that you wanted to do in the last, you know, it used to be you'd go stage at restaurants, but now it's that, I guess you stage after cooking school or you stage, then go to cooking school. Yeah. How did you, did you make a conscious decision you weren't going to do that? Or did you realize you were getting good enough that you didn't have to? Like, what was that thinking? Because a lot of people think they have to go to school to become a screenwriter. They have to go to school to become an actor or to become a a cook. So can you talk a little bit about that? There's nothing traditional about me at all. Uh, I don't believe in doing things a certain way, you know, the way that they say you're supposed to do it. I, that's, that's just not me. I go to the, I do my own thing. And there, there was, I, I wasn't going to spend a hundred thousand dollars going to the Culinary Institute of America, which in hindsight, I probably should have. Cause I mean, you'd like the grounding. I, I would love the, just the, the core skills that you learn from the ground up. I, I would love that now. Um, but then it was Do you wasn't, hire from those places? Uh, a little bit here and there, but I hire for people. I, I want to know the people. So you would hire someone who didn't get formal... Most of my most of my staff. Did not get formal training. No formal training. Okay, yeah. good. They're just nice people. Right. And then you taught them how to cook or they came in knowing how to cook yeah. and you refined it? Yeah. We, we do have a couple of key people that that have been to culinary school and I learned so much from them. <laughs> really? <laughs> I do. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's amazing. So you, um, you're cooking, you're managing a restaurant, you're cooking in all of your, basically your spare time is spent, at, all of it. um, buying food, talking to people who grow, grow food, studying produce, buying produce. And that's what your life is like for how, 
How long does this period go on before you have enough money and feel like you trust yourself enough to try to get your own so spot? So it was four years of uh, of doing that, you know, holding dinner parties where I would do a six-course tasting menu. Uh, that a menu you would totally design after uh, yeah, yeah, of yeah. your own? Yeah, yeah, And were they like events kind of? Would you pay for it? Would you? Should, I would pay for it. It's just, it just would be a, a group of six to ten people at my house and we'd be, you know, I, I traveled to Japan one year and um, I came home and I was like, I love Japanese food. Let me do a, a whole night of just Japanese food. And actually my, my now wife, came to that night. And, That's how you met her? Uh, yeah, well, we grew up in the same town. And uh, so I always knew her, but we didn't really know each other. And she came to one of the oh, dinners awesome. through That's a mutual great. friend. And five years later, we're married. Sure. Um, and did you know that the... that Would you have people give you honest feedback? Or could you just feel in the room how the stuff was going over? Yeah, it, I could I could definitely sense when things are good but i'm i'm by far my worst critic by far if i don't like something then like i don't really care how many compliments i get on it or if if i don't believe that it's the best thing that i or if it could have been a little bit better or a little less salty or a little bit more caramelization on that steak you know whatever right it'll drive you crazy yeah yeah, yeah. personally it'll drive yeah, it you does. crazy even if other people are like that was amazing absolutely so what is if you walk in your restaurant and you see like that's not <laughs> shit. That's not exactly what I would have wanted. Have you trained yourself not to freak out? Yes. Yeah. Especially I, if I the still slip every now and then. Time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I usually know before. Before on the pass it goes. Yeah. The pass I, before it goes. I usually know during the day um, when something is not exactly how it should. I mean, be. not being prepped the right way. Mm -hmm. Is it mostly happen in prep? Uh, yeah. Now, now definitely, and, and it's mostly revolving around the around the pizza dough or. Uh, the way we made the cheese that day. Are you struggling to get to sleep? If so, the fine people at Mattress Firm want to help. Mattress Firm, a.k.a. America's Neighborhood Mattress Store, can help you stretch your budget a little further. These are mattress experts here, people, and they're not just mattress experts. They can straight up help you build your bed from headboards to adjustable bases to sheets. They even have bedroom decor. They got you covered, literally and figuratively. Plus, go to mattressfirm.com and save 10% with the code PODCAST10 through May 2nd. Mattress Firm offers a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee. So you know you paid the perfect price. Again, go to mattressfirm.com to learn how your sleeping could be tremendously improved. I want to continue with the story because I want to hear all of it. That's fascinating <laughs> to me, but I want to continue because... You know, I, um, this very this is like a a great thing because you're living your dream and it's working, and you're still killing yourself over it. <laughs> so you're doing these dinner parties, and do you start to realize at a certain point, all right, I've gotten good at this? Uh, you know, honestly, I'm still trying to get good at it. Yeah, but you know, I there was there was a a, a moment where I'm proficient or a professional, whatever you want to. No, honestly, it, I didn't consider myself a chef until I got my first James Beard thing. I never call myself. I still don't really call myself Jeff. I mean, you know, that, yeah, probably because you didn't go to school, and so you didn't. Weren't no one told you? You know, all of us want permission from some authority. You can just give yourself permission, though. Yeah. Like that's what you have to learn. Yeah, but you I know, didn't want to be. You want someone else to say oh, I'm a you're chef a chef now? You want, yeah, but you. I mean, all of us. It's really important, I think, to not to like accept the fact that you don't need someone else to tell you. 
what or who you are. Yeah. You don't need an authority to say, hey, Dan, you're a chef. Yeah, but I also didn't need the label. I didn't need the label of, oh, I'm the chef. You know, I I just wanted to cook. I I view myself as a cook. I cook food. I make food for people. Right. And Well, you're trying to strip the pretension out of it. Definitely. So you do this... And I know I said, when did you realize you get good and you don't like being considered good? So when, <laughs> but but something must have happened where you were like, well, I'm gathering together the rudimentary skills necessary to do this. How long did it take before you felt that way? Well, so four years after my first trip, um, I I had been working in a, a restaurant as as a manager um, with the the understanding with the owner that that he did not want to be in the restaurant business and he's going to sell it to me. Um, and it was a failing restaurant. It, it was barely paying its bills. Why was it failing? Uh, it, it just wasn't good. Okay, the food just wasn't good. The food wasn't and good. And the vibe didn't work. It, exactly. The um, uh, Mainly the food wasn't good and people just, the, nobody cared about it. It wasn't nurtured um, the way a restaurant needs to be. Uh, so he said one day, uh, you know, here's the price of the restaurant, take it or leave it. Um, you need to come up with a lot of money and this is, this is the price. Let's do and it. Why is it? It's a lot of money. Cause you were getting the real estate too. You were getting, to it work. wasn't the real estate. So it was just, the it was restaurant, just the, the restaurant. Of where the re- restaurant yeah. Was. So he sold me the lease and the name of the restaurant and I guess the furnitures, fixtures and equipment. Right. And yeah. you did it. And it, so as, had you saved enough or you had to take No way, out? yeah. I, I saved uh, $10,000 in in that four years. And um, I maxed out three credit cards and I got like nine or 10 people to give me smaller amounts of money. How long a period of time did it, you have to set, did he give you? Like what was the deadline he uh, gave you? I had a, it was probably about six months that I had um, and... I, I made it happen. And that, that was the biggest success of my life. Was just you mean getting to have the restaurant? Getting How old to ha- were you then? 26. Holy crap. So 26, I bought this restaurant <laughs> that was just barely, barely breaking even. Um, and I had borrowed a ton of money from my standpoint at that, you know, at that time in my life. Um, and I had the keys to this restaurant. And it was, it was fully functional, which... I don't think I would have had the balls to do a restaurant from scratch at that point. I didn't. Holy function ha- mean it had a liquor license. No license. No license. No nope. license. Nope. No nope. wine. Nope. In New Jersey, our liquor laws are a little bit backwards, and to get a liquor license in that town, I think the last one sold for like five hundred thousand dollars. So did it never? Arturo's never had a liquor license. Nope. Would people bring their own? Yep. Wow. Yeah. So you're fine. I mean, doing a really great restaurant without wine is hard. Yeah, really difficult. Um, because you can't completely control the experience people are having. Yeah. Right? You can't... I mean, first of all, the the wine is where you make a ton of money, restaurants, right? Yeah, a decent amount. Um, so did you change the restaurant right away? What happens? You, no, so, you take it over, you shake the guy's hand, now it's my restaurant. Yeah. So what do we do? I changed one little thing at a time from the lighting to the tables to the chairs to the logo the ingredients consistently got better as i learned more about um, about 
tomatoes and about cheese and about pasta and all of these things. So I would just, it was, it was really just, there was, it was sink or swim. Okay. Sure. Of course. I had to pay back you all of cook? this money. Yeah, yeah. 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 You were the cook. Yeah. 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 So that changed, right? Because you weren't the cook. Right. Before. Right. And so did you suddenly change? So like the people meeting there every day, I'm picturing like in big night when the people come in and that's in New Jersey too. One of the great, if you haven't seen big night, everybody, that's it's so one good. of the, really one of my favorite movies ever. And maybe the best movie about what it is to open a small restaurant. Yeah. But you know, the al dente pasta, for instance, was that an adjustment for the customers? When um, suddenly you were like, no, 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 the spaghetti's not supposed to be mushy. So I was, I was very conscious of the fact that it was an open restaurant at, that I took over and we did have guests coming into the restaurant and I didn't want to alienate anyone. I right. was, you know, scared shitless. I was 26 years old with the restaurant. I didn't want to alienate anybody. I didn't want to make any huge changes that were going to disrupt things yet. Uh, so I just changed subtle, subtle things. It, it had the bones of a restaurant, it had two wood fired ovens. Okay. And that was, that was the key for me. It had this infrastructure that it, it had parameters. I had to make everything out of the wood fired ovens. There was no stove. Okay. There was no fryer. There was no regular ovens. We had two wood fired ovens and that's it. That's the whole thing. That's it. Okay. Some refrigeration, a couple prep tables, and that's it. It was really simple. Uh, so with those parameters, I was able to kind of weave in and out and figure out exactly what we could physically produce and what we couldn't produce. Like there are certain things that in a wood-fired oven you just can't do. Uh, so I was experimenting a lot, but also conscious not to alienate too many people. Because you needed to continue to break. I mean, you needed the restaurant yeah. before you reinvented it. Exactly. How many hours a day were you working? It was... For real numbers. It was all of my 20s. My, that entire decade. I worked. How many days off do you think you took a year? Uh, not very many. Um, I, I tried to take Sundays off. The first year was just, it was, sure. it was nonstop. And we were open for lunch and dinner. And so, you're the cook. Yeah, and I was there. I was the first one there and the last and one. And you were buying go. the produce in the morning or with someone else? Um, I, would, I would go to farmer's markets a couple times a week, but we were also using some of the big, bigger distributors. <laughs> sure. Um, and this this is before uh, before you could just make a phone call and get locally grown vegetables. Is this end of the '90s or beginning of the 2000s? This was 2006. Okay, sure, yeah, yeah, in New Jersey, right? So it's not like we had the Union Square Green Market. No, right of course, at our steps, of course. Yes, yeah, twelve years. I mean, it's twelve years ago. It's a long yeah. time ago. So you start um, doing this. You're working all these hours. And then how do you change the food? I would just change one thing at a time, like one little thing. Give me so, an example of something to change. Uh, so we had a pizza recipe that we were using. It wasn't very good, but I would change the tomatoes from what they were using. I would try something else. I would talk to a tomato cannery and say, okay, what's your best product? Why is it your best product? Let me taste it. And I would do compare and con contrast. Like what? And what was your ambition? Like, what was success in your mind at that time? At that moment, what would have success have looked like? I had already been successful because I bought the restaurant. That was success. That was it. My own restaurant is actually all, it was binary for you. I mean, there's someone who has a restaurant or doesn't. Yeah. And I wanted to pay my loans back. 
I couldn't let these people down because I borrowed money from them. I, like I said, I maxed three credit cards out. Yes. I, there, I needed to pay them back. Um, and, you know, I didn't really focus on the financial You didn't say to yourself, I want to have one of the best Italian restaurants in New Jersey. I wanted to be the best that I could be. Con that was a conscious thought you had? Like, I, Always, want, to yeah. I want this to kill. Yeah. I just want to be great. I, right. want, I want to make the, the, I want to, I want to give someone, I want to give a guest that experience that I had. Were you nervous Italy. when you first like would change things and you would, would you watch them eat it? Like how I did... still watch people eat. That's the best part. Right. <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah. And I was, you know, in the restaurant constantly developing great relationships with guests and it was just, it was, <laughs> it was my social life. It was my professional life. It was all intertwined. It was all on the line. It was the best. And did it, how long till it started working? Um, it was a slow and steady growth from like three months in. From three months in, how did, did you have a sense of how it was happening? Were people telling other friends, like I had a really good meal at that Arturo's yeah. place. Yeah. It was, um, it was completely organic. I, I still don't have like, I don't do any marketing. I don't do any PR. I don't have, you know, it's just not a part of how I do business right now. Uh, it was, it's all organic. It's all word of mouth. It's, you, you, somebody once told me that the restaurant, a restaurant is one of the last great meritocracies where you yep. do a good job. People will come more often. If you have a mind blowing meal somewhere, all you want to do is tell everyone you know about That's it. That's it. You really do. I know I do. Yeah. And, um, so if that happened, that makes, that makes sense to me. So three months in steady growth, was there a review that landed back then in the local papers? There was something in a local paper that August, so eight months in, and that took us to another level. And it wasn't it wasn't anything major, but it was it brought a significant amount of people in, and uh, it was it was more than we could handle. So we grew. We we didn't have a host at that point. Uh, so we added a host. We didn't have a dishwasher at that point. So we added a dishwasher. Who was doing the dishes? Uh, pretty much anyone who had a free second. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was. It just came together because it had to. Somebody had to do the dishes. So we hired a so, dishwasher. So then you. So then now you're able to hire somebody. Yeah. So slowly it started. And one person at a time, we would add to the staff, and it grew to to a nice place. And then how long in did you get the first sort of like national kind of attention? Like the James Beard Award? Or... Probably three or four years in. And by that time, were there like, was a reservation getting hard to get? So we didn't, we, I'm, we don't do any reservations. Right. No reservations. Never. You never. never. I know you don't at Raza. Yeah. Raza. Never. It's always first come, first serve. Pizza, I feel, is the most, undeniably, it's the most social food out there. And it should be available to everyone, and it should be uh, the the playing field should be level. It's first come, first serve. The first people who get in line are the first people who eat the pizza. Right. Uh, so I'm I'm not into into reservations. Now, and even at, at Arturo's, that was like yeah. a conscious thought that you had. Yeah. Did that have to do with like in Italy, you would just roll in and be able to get this great pasta somehow? Or yeah. did you just always grow up feeling that way? I just, I feel like it, it's pizza. It should be. But Arturo's wasn't only a pizza place, right? We did other things there also. Um, and I, I did, uh, twice a week, we would close down the restaurant. On Tuesday and Saturday night, we would close down the restaurant and do, it was, it was reservations. This was, um, we would do tasting menus. It would be a six course tasting menu. 
Uh, everybody eats the same thing. There's no no ordering. No one orders. Yeah. You just sit down and we bring you out food. And it was whatever I could find. And was that's that what... an uncommon thing in that area at that time? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because in New York, people were starting to yeah, yeah, do that. But were you where people weren't? Not at all. And you, you just were saying that's when it really started to. Yeah. That's when people start writing about you. Exactly. Yeah, they would come to the meal and have such a great time. It was so that would be like those dinner affordable. parties, essentially. Exactly. That's where I got. That's they prepared you to to do this, and then that would would that be a traditional Italian menu or just whatever you felt like you wanted to? Cook? It, it was it was pretty Italian focused. What would be an example of like a thing that you would so have done? the first course was the antipasto course. It would be you know a plate of cured meats, a really awesome cheese, uh, maybe some crostini. Um, second course was always a salad. It was family style. Third course was a soup. Um, so I would make just one giant pot of soup and ladle 40, 40, 40 bowls of soup and serve the 40 bowls of soup, clear the plates. And then it would be the pasta course. It was always a handmade pasta because I was, before I was obsessed with pasta, I was massively obsessed with. You mean before you were obsessed with pizza, you were obsessed with pasta. Exactly. Uh, so I loved making handmade pasta. Um, and then it was the main course and then the dessert. And when you started, did you know you were going to do it a bunch of times? Or was it like you did it once to see if it would work? Yeah. How'd you get the word so out? So it started with with a, <clears throat> a family, two families, really. They said, uh, it was my first year in business. They were like, just just bring me out some food. Just feed me. So I did it. And then it gradually, uh, the table next to them said, oh, I want what they're having. Well, okay, let's do it next week. And then one by one, eventually the entire dining room was was filled and we brought structure to it and it's great that you were nimble enough to adapt to that like to see it and to go all right i'm gonna try it'd be stupid not to it's like you i want to feed these people i want to i want to show you like all these those nights start having high demand so much demand yeah and it was so i i got uh the james beard thing came out one march or april and we were booked until august after that um and then of course, what was the first James Beard it nomination was, um, for? Rising Star Chef. And then suddenly magazines want to come and all these people want to A lot of people take wanted to come, yeah. yeah. And yeah. did that confirmate? So that's when you like thought, okay, I know what I'm doing a little bit? A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Was your restaurant, were the people all happy? Had you paid back your investors by then? I was close to it, yeah. Oh, that must have felt... What did it feel like when you finally did? Uh, sigh of relief. Right. Yeah. And you felt like you had your own... It was like you were done. You'd done it. Yeah. And then did you start? So how many, why didn't you end up making it like five nights a week, that tasting menu? Because I, at that point, I started becoming, I started losing my interest in being this grand chef with a tasting menu and making pasta. And I became more obsessed with the core of what the business was, which is a wood-fired pizzeria. What, how did that start to happen? How did you how did you catch yourself and realize, wait, because you were like, this is really successful. I could really build this business. Yep. But then you were like, but I don't love doing this thing. I, I love doing I, this other thing. You know, I love doing it, but f- the five other nights of the week and and seven lunches a week, we were making pizza. And I felt like the pizza was never getting any better because I changed wow. the sauce. I changed the cheese. You know, I... I, I made the toppings as good as I can make it. And then this one fateful day, like my second or third year in business, Anthony Mangieri oh, walks in. This is what in. I'm obsessed with this story. This is when he <laughs> told me this. So, all right, we're back now to Una Pizza Napolitana. I want to just set the table. So 
the bit I like I've traveled and I've eaten a lot of pizza everywhere and the the my the total reset for me on what it, pizza should taste like was when I ate this guy Anthony's pizza at a place called Una Pizza Napolitana in, in New York. I'd read about him. He came from Asbury Park, New Jersey was his first place, and then he moved to New York City and he he left and opened in San Francisco. But so he had become and he was a legendary person because he only made a certain amount of dough every day, the amount that would proof in the time needed, and when the dough was gone, he would stop serving pizza. And it was one of these things that was super hyped. And then when you ate it, it totally lived up to the hype. And he was a legend among pizzaiolas. And you had mentioned to me that he came into your joint and you weren't ready for him in a way. Yeah. To tell what happened. So, so you're, so he so walked where are in. You? This is Arturo's, not Razza. Right. So what, what, what year do you think this is? Maybe, oh, oh, eight, maybe. And you recognize him right away? Oh, yeah. Cause I used to go there all the time. I used to go to his restaurant every Sunday. And because, you knew it was, do you really like, that's better than my thing? Oh, you could smell the difference in in his restaurant. You can smell when when some when one of his servers was walking past your table with a pizza. You could smell how good it was. There was some intangible quality to this pizza that was ethereal that I'd never smelled before. And I don't know, you know, it, it was a combination of the wood that he used, the way that the um, and certainly the way that he ferments his dough. Uh, but you can smell it in that restaurant. It was amazing. It was the best pizza that I had ever tasted. And I, w- I loved going there. It was, it was a really special place. So did you invite him to your restaurant? No. Uh, yeah, probably. You probably said, like, stop by my joint yeah, sometime. Yeah, yeah. And, But not expecting that he'd really not do it. Exactly. And so where are you when he shows up? What so happens? I was not even at the restaurant. Oh, no, It was one of my days off. I was cooking dinner for my brother and my sister-in-law. I love that that's what you did on your day off. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> uh, so we, and <laughs> one of the guys at the restaurant called me, said, uh, somebody's here for you. His name's Anthony Majeri. I'm like, oh, shit. Jesus. So... Uh, you know, the I, I w- made the commitment to not go back to the restaurant. I was living like eight minutes away from the restaurant. You didn't so I go? didn't go. No. I said, you know what? This is my this is my family. I'm not gonna leave my brother and sister in law. You are a better man than I. I <laughs> had to go. So I wasn't even there, but the level of embarrassment that I had when he was eating at my restaurant, I was mortified that we we were serving this product that was probably by most standards it was fine no it was award winning actually um <laughs> uh, but i was i was so mortified that i was serving but this because you knew in your heart it wasn't up to standard it yeah. wasn't the best you could possibly do exactly you weren't obsessed enough exactly about the pizza. so every day since that day I've focused on learning bread making techniques and focused on my pizza, trying to make the best product that I can make. You literally, from the moment he walked, this is like a classic story for the for me. Like, you literally felt that embarrassment, held on to that feeling, and used it to motivate you to become the best pizza maker in the country. Absolutely. That minute. That minute. Because that's the thing that people you have to people have to understand. There are basically um, Anthony, Chris Bianco, and you. Those are the three people people think are the best making pizza in the country now. And that um, that's an incredible accomplishment. Those guys had a huge head starts on you. They're both, they're 15. I mean, Chris is like my, I'm 51. Chris is my age. Those guys are both 10 years older. They're, they're, yeah. they're way, you know, they did it way before. Yeah. I'm, I still feel like I'm at the beginning of this journey. 
So you say to yourself, okay, I have to become great at this now because Anthony ate my food and I don't think it was good enough. Yeah. Did you go back to his place? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. did you say something to him or no? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What'd you say? I, you know, I, t- I, I saw him in, I saw him like three weeks ago and I told him this whole story and, you know, he's- Oh, you he's, did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you tell him back then though? Like, I feel uh, embarrassed you came in? I probably did. I don't, I don't remember. And, and then did you tell him you were going to tell him when you were ready for him to come in next? No, I would never do that. I would never, in, yeah. I would but, love for him to see the pizza, but I'm not, like, my feeling about my pizza and my feeling about my success or failure is not determined by what he thinks of my pizza. No, but it's what you feel if he's eating your pizza. Like, uh, you want him to come, right? Uh, yeah, yes and no. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> Wait, I have to it would be great this. to see him because he's an awesome person i love him he's super inspirational he was a catalyst in my life uh, i'm not trying i've never never since day one have i been trying to replicate what he's doing of course, i know all. you have enough no i don't want to talk about that you took because it's also fascinating so this guy was a hero but you wanted to do, he um okay just a little nerding out on pizza for a second if you can you can you can do it better than i can because you're like the expert of the world on this can you talk about the the tradition that he's in and what it means and what the rules are and what was assumed to be necessary to make great pizza? Can you just set the table in a nerdy way? Yeah, so he is una pizza napolitana. He's making a Neapolitan pizza, okay, which follows very specific, uh, very typically specific rules uh, where you use double zero flour, you use tomatoes from the San Marzano region, you use Italian olive oil, Italian sea salt, um, and you bake it in a wood-fired oven, typically that comes from Naples, that has very specific dimensions so that the pizza cooks in 60 to 90 seconds, right? The the rim of the pizza, or the cornichon, the, um, the crust basically, is pretty puffy. Uh, the toppings are just barely cooked and there are only like five that are allowed right right uh, and and talk about the crust itself which not the cornichon but the actual the crust itself right the base so it's it's cooked in 60 to 90 seconds so it's soft it's meant to be eaten with a fork and knife uh, they don't cut their pizza because it's meant to be eaten with a fork and knife I mean they don't slice it they right. cut it with the fork and knife but right. they don't slice they don't make pizza slices exactly right and it's excellent when it's done incredibly well. Right, right. And when he does it, it's ethereal. Yes, it's when he does it, it's ethereal because it's the thing someone Best was talking about. When he does it, it's ethereal because well, it's the thing um, someone said when Brian May puts his hands on a guitar, people thought it was like the amp or the way it was set up. It's just Brian May's fingers on yeah. the guitar make it sound the way that it sounds. And somehow, like you or Chris, when Anthony's making a pizza, it just works, right? But you set out to go about it a different way. Right. So I go back to uh, to agriculture a little bit more. Uh, basically, as, as, as chefs or as pizza makers, we have control over two things. It's your ingredients and your techniques. That's it. So as, when you focus on those two elements, you're going to get a great product. Okay. So I focus a lot on the ingredients and I focus... But how did you decide not to... So at the moment that, that Anthony's Pizza was considered the untouchable pizza... The, there was this huge movement in the world of pizza to say 
this is the only kind of excellent pizza. If you liked pizza with strange toppings, you were like liking the paintings of Robert McHater. So like it was just considered wrong. So how did you decide? So you the guy comes into your restaurant, you're embarrassed, but you uh, and you decide I'm going to cook. Be, I have to get better. But how'd you decide not to care about the orthodoxy? Like what made you decide, uh, actually, I don't want to do it that way. Yeah. So I had been going to uh, every pizzeria that I could possibly go to at that point. Um, on my days off, on, you know, I, I would just visit every pizzeria that I p could possibly go to. Uh, and I realized at the end of it, I don't like Neapolitan style pizza. Unless Anthony Majeri's making it. Because you don't like that that doesn't have a firm crust. Right. So I don't like the texture of it, and I don't like the way it feels in my mouth. I don't like the 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 messiness of it. And it's just not something... I, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up eating Pizza Village on Route 34 in Madawan. I grew up being able to pick the pizza up with my hands, fold it, and have the crust crack. And when you bite into it your teeth bite through it and the crust shatters, okay? It's crispy, okay? That's what I loved about pizza. And that innately is not what they're looking for in Naples. Okay, I've had Neapolitan guys come to my restaurant. I've been there and everybody, they all say that I'm doing it the wrong way. Right. Like, of course they do. Because I'm not making Neapolitan style pizza. It is absolutely- But you just, so your big insight was I don't care. I actually don't like it. Yeah. So I can't try to- Fake the I don't want to fake the funk. I can't play their game. Exactly. Because I don't dig it. Exactly. But then that left you without a model to follow. Right. So, right? Yeah. Because the one thing that unorthodoxy has is um, if everyone's rapping tefillin, you know, oh, well, I just have to rap the tefillin. That's just a, <laughs> an atheist Jew to another, like, casual, no Jew, the tefillin reference. But, like, but that's true, right? So yes. you can follow the orthodoxy. So here you couldn't follow the orthodoxy. Right. So what do you say to yourself? So I created my own. Right. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I don't view myself as like a visionary or anything. Like I couldn't just whip up this amazing thing. I had to take a more scientific approach of it. So I started compiling a list of all of the characteristics about pizza that I love. Okay. And at, at this point, awesome. I'm, I'm still working writing, on it. You started writing a just list. Writing a list. Okay, and then I turned it into an, an evaluation system for myself, a rubric, a scale of one to five, you I know, five being man. the greatest, one being it was terrible. Um, and so at this point, the list is 50 characteristics long, and it, it's, it informs everything that we do at the restaurant. Because everything has to be a five on all those things? It's never going to be a five, but as close to a five that we can get on every single one of those characteristics. And what were the key, key characteristics? Oh, my God. Everything from, okay, so the cheese alone has like five characteristics. From the way it melts and the way it flows onto, onto the pizza to the way it browns, the way it pulls, uh, the flavor of the cheese, whether it's, uh, you know, the color of the cheese, whether it's an off-white or bright white. Uh, the tomatoes have seven very distinct characteristics uh, that, uh, you know, the sweetness, the acidity, the color, the texture, the positive flavor attributes. And I think you said I was wrong about San Marzano's, right? In our show, it shouldn't be San Marzano's. For what? 
Do you put San Marzano? We don't. Right. We don't. That's right. I remember, yeah. yeah. So we do a tomato tasting every year uh, because tomatoes are an agricultural product and there should be variations from year to year. Otherwise, is it, you know, it, it's an agricultural product. Okay. It has, it should have a little bit of terroir to it. Yes. Um, so what, what I do is I contact all my distributors and find every best tomato that I can find. And there's, we always throw in a San Martano or two, you know, some Italian, some California, some New Jersey. And we do a double blind taste test with my t- tomato evaluation rubric, which is part of the overall pizza evaluation rubric. And we taste with our rubric and our taste buds, as opposed to reading the label or uh, looking at the region that it comes from, or you're just smelling it and tasting it. That's it. We're we're just tasting it and letting our taste buds decide. And it's a collective process. We do it with my my entire kitchen staff. Sometimes I'll invite friends over to do it. And uh, amazing. It's just it's a it's a, a better way of guaranteeing. And you're that, that way with the product. flour too, right? The flour is um, the flour is a little bit different. Um, the flour that we use two flours right now. One is King Arthur unbleached all-purpose flour that you can buy at any supermarket. It's a great, consistent, good flour. And the other one is um, is a locally produced one. The flour we we don't change very often. We just changed a little bit ago, but bread. So bread baking and pizza making in general is is all about managing variables. Okay, managing the temperatures and managing the ratios and uh, and flour is one that I try to limit, and so that from batch to batch I can sure. see the differences. Sure. Limit, yeah, that makes total sense. That's the sort of standard thing, exactly. The control, almost, exactly. That makes complete sense to me. So you start making this rubric though, from the and and you're still cooking your pizza the way you are at Arturo's, or are you changing it with the rubric? Changing it with the rubric. You're changing it as you decide. Wait a second, I'm not. Right. I'm no longer going to try to bow to this other idea. Kind of like it. Exactly. So you start making your ideal. That's when you fully go, I'm making my ideal pizza. Yeah. And if I love it, they're going to love it. Exactly. Is that what you believe yeah. at the time? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't really care about anybody else except uh, what I wanted to create and what the rubric said. Yeah. You know, this is a total artist story, right? It's the way artists go. You start by imitating something. You love something. First, you love something. You hear a piece of music. Then you try to make something like it. And then at a certain point, you go... I need to have my own voice. Exactly. My own artistic style. Exactly. And I'm going to make it for me. And if they like it, that's great. Yeah. You have to learn the rules before you can break them. And so that's what you did. Yeah. And then as you started changing it, did people immediately start responding to it? Yeah. How quickly? Uh, Pretty quick. Pretty quick. They noticed, which must have made you feel great that they mm-hmm. noticed. Yeah. I'm, I'm still changing. I'm still tinkering with it. I still do fine tuning all the but time. But this isn't Ratza. This is still Arturo then? This was at the point where I opened. Because then you decided I need to have it just a pizza. I want a restaurant where where it's all about the pizza. Yeah. I wanted to do less and do it better. And that was the idea behind Raza. So you did you sell the other restaurant or you kept it going? Uh, I At that time. I kept it going. But you devoted most of your time to yeah. Raza, to making Raza great? Yep. So I just want to stop for one second and ask you this. We touched on it earlier, but now deeper into it. What? why do you like so we do all eat pizza as a kid but why do you think we are so connected to it like what is it about pizza that is like we all eat burgers as kids too 
And yes, burgers are ama- like burgers are great. But what is it about pizza that leads to this kind of every five minutes someone's making a list of the best slices. Every five minutes someone like, we're all not all of us. I'm sure some people out there listening are like, I don't like pizza. But <laughs> basically, I hope you've stopped living. Maybe you know, probably aren't still here actually. But like, what is it that 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 is so gripping about it? I mean, you see the look on people's faces when they come in. The people who have to come back there. What is it about pizza? I think it's the social aspect of it. You do? It's I do, yeah. It's it's shareable. A burger is not shareable. You can't say, here, have some of my burger. Whereas you get a pizza and you bring people together. You bring your family together. You bring your classmates together. You bring, and, and it's accessible. It's, you know, when I was growing up, it's still now, you can get a slice of pizza for a dollar. Yes. So it's not like a, it's not a big commitment. It's just, you're walking down the street, you're hungry. Oh, there's a pizza shop. Let me get a dollar slice. Yes. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So the social aspect and that, that it's so accessible. Plus, it's really part of our our history as you know over the past over the since the early 1900s. Yes, it's really part of being an American for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I also think that there's something about um just how delicious great pizza yeah. is. There's a sense you kind of remember because of the way the cheese feels with the crust. It is kind of the what food people call the hedonic experience. It does it it hits you in all those ways, right? It yeah. fires those endorphins when it's yeah. done. I mean, melted cheese is amazing and just the combination of sauce, cheese and, and crust, you know, sauce offers sweetness and acidity and the cheese offers this rich fat. Okay? And those are, that's just a, a winning combination. Oh, yes, and you, you, it's winning. And you put it on top of a really great piece of bread, which, like, let's break it down. Pizza is just a flatbread with some condiments on top of it. Right. Okay, in its most simple form. So you put this sweet, acidic, and fat on top of really properly fermented, delicious, ethereal bread. That's That's just... What's going to be bad about that? That makes complete sense to me. Uh, one w- question, just technically. So the browning of the cheese is that have to do with? <laughs> does that have to do with? Does that have to do with um, how hot the uh, oven is? How hot or how the long oven is. it's in, or where it is in the oven? Uh, definitely, definitely. It has to do with the temperature of the cheese when you put it onto the pizza. The it has to do with the air temperature of the oven because because you want it to be a certain kind of brown. Uh, you want a certain brown on part of the cheese. Gently brown, gently brown. Yeah. And is that, if you walk into a pizza place and they have that, does that tell you there's a chance they're doing a good job if they're conscious of it? Um, so I look for four things in a finished product. What do you look for? Uh, the four basic things are uh, the oven spring. Okay. That's how how well it's fermented and how well it rises. Okay. I look for the, um, the browning of the crust. Okay. And how deeply caramelized the, the crust is. That'll tell you the texture of it. Uh, and then I look for the way the sauce reduces. Okay. So when you put a liquid into an oven, it reduces and, uh, the level of reduction of the sauce will tell you how pasty or how acidic the sauce is going to be. You want some reduction or you Uh, don't want any. We we do. I'm looking for something that is velvety and, and still has the appropriate level of moisture. And what's the fourth thing? And is the, uh, the way the cheese melts. Okay, so I look for those four things, like 
So if you go to a pizza place, you're looking at those things. Absolutely. And st- before you even taste it, you're looking at all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can tell visually whether whether something is worth eating or not. Sure. My, my wife is thinks I'm hilarious because I'll walk into a pizzeria, look look for, I look for those four things in my head at a pizza place, but the spring, and then I'll walk out. How can you out. tell about the spring if you're just looking? I you can see the finished or when it comes right when it comes out of the, you'll look for right when it comes out of the oven. This is so this is when I'm I'm looking at like a, a slice of pizza. Sure. Oh, okay. you can tell all this. You yeah. can tell all I this can tell on Instagram just by looking at a slice. Yeah, I, I uh, I've met fantastic. so many people through over through the world on Instagram, just looking at their at their pizza pictures, and I can tell I'm going to go to that place. Like there's this girl Sarah Minnick in uh, Portland, Oregon, amazing place. I found her picture somewhere on Instagram, and I look for those four things, and I flew out to have Portland. Have you had Adam Kubin's pizza yet? I have not. You got to. We got to. I know. I know. Got to do. I've it. never met him. He's the, no one cares more about pizza than that I guy. Know, I know, I know. I have and Scott Weiner. Do you know him? No, from oh, Scott's Pizza Tours. Oh no, I know. He's the guy who did all the slices in New York. Yeah, he. So he runs the Scott's Pizza Tours. He gotta, takes people you on. Gotta introduce me to that guy. He is a freak of nature. He's incredible. And you he knows. Does he him. know good from bad? Dude, he is the most. He is the most knowledgeable pizza professional I've ever met in my life. Right. I would say Adam is probably, but I get it. Like. I got to meet this guy too. So before in our remaining minutes here, um, how long did it take for Razzo to explode before the, for really catch on before Pete Wells came walking through the door? How long were you open? We've been open for five and a half years now. And every year has been uh, a struggle, a, a struggle, a struggle. Why? Yeah. It's a, it's a 40 seat restaurant. We have 11 tables and our, there's nothing, no food on our menu. That's higher more uh more expensive than eighteen dollars. Right. Okay. So, so you have very to be jammed full all the time. And there we were times you weren't. Uh yeah. As uh, last winter I didn't think I was gonna re-sign my lease. Really? Yeah. And then Pete Wells from the New York Times walks in the door. Do you recognize him when he comes in? No. Your staff doesn't know. No, does anybody know what he looks like? I mean, in New York, they all have his picture do. hidden. They all have his picture <laughs> hidden enough. We're not, we're not that advanced in New right. Jersey. No, I mean, it's also just you're, you're trying to do some other thing. Well, also, so you don't know he comes in at that time. We also, we did receive a New York Times review from the New Jersey section a couple of years. And was it a good review? It was great. Yeah, it was right. the best that we could get, um, which gave us a boost for, you know, six months. And then winter shows up and can't get people in the restaurant. And so then you don't know that this, did they call you and say, we're coming to photograph the restaurant after? I got an, so I got an email, but. So tell me, tell the story. So you're you're living your life. He brought Ed Levine in on one of his trips. Right. And I. Who's my good friend. And Ed Levine has a very recognizable face. Everybody knows what he looks like. So I knew him. So, you know. Ed Ed is the founder, editor in chief of um, Serious Eats and is a legend in New York uh, eating. And he and I live in the same building. He's amazing. Um, we've been friends for a long time. I helped coach his son's <laughs> basketball team. So like, I so Ed and Pete Wells come in, but you don't know that it's Pete Wells. No. I mean, he wrote his review about Ed and him. Right. It's about the two of them coming in. So do you say hi to them at the table? I did. Yeah, yeah. And, and we weren't did overbearing Ed say, this or anything. Is Pete? No, no, no. Oh, so no. you did not know that he was with no, Pete Wells? No. no. I didn't realize, I didn't find out that we were getting a review until they emailed saying, Pete Wells has reviewed you. We need to set up a photo shoot. And at that time, did you know if it was a good or a bad review? I had a feeling that it was going to be good because he's not going to go out of New York. He's not going to come to New Jersey to take down Dan Richer, who 
is a thirty-something-year-old Jewish kid right. with a with eleven tables. Did you? I'm not Guy Fieri. Did you stay up? Uh, yeah. Uh, did you stay up to see that review land? Like, did you know it was coming? Um, I, I guess we knew it was coming. Uh, like you knew it was going to be this Wednesday. I knew it was going to be. Uh, yeah. And I was at the restaurant, and I pulled it up on my phone, and and did you freak out? Yeah, I read it aloud to uh, with my kitchen guys and by the end of it we were jumping up and down and tears in your eyes it was it was awesome it was pretty special but the the best part of it was that it kind of broke through the fact that you don't have your location doesn't dictate whether your product is good or bad okay you don't have to be in new york to make a good product it's not the water and it's not a, a location it's about those two things ingredients and technique that's it Look at Chris Bianco. He's in Phoenix, Arizona. He makes some of the best pizza in the in the country. He really does. It's his ingredients and his techniques. It's pretty simple. Right. And so what happened the next day? So you get the review. Do you know my life changed? Uh yeah. Yeah. You do, right? Well, I knew we were gonna be busier. Any anytime we you get the You knew you weren't shutting the restaurant soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And did uh have you been how have you managed the whole thing? Like, you know, Guy Fieri and I talked about that Pete Wells' bad review of yeah. his place and sort of like how that felt. But for you, did it feel like a validation? Uh, yes. I would say, yeah, it does. Uh, and how have you managed like your all your old friends coming out of the woodwork to be like, can I come in? I want to come. It's, you know, I've taken the same approach the whole time. It's my 90-year-old grandmother came to the restaurant a couple of years ago and she waited in line. Okay, I think that's wrong. It's terrible, I that's know. That's wrong. I think that's a bad... <laughs> I think that's the first wrong thing you've said in this entire podcast. But how do you do it? How do you say to other people who are waiting, no, sorry, this person's more important than you? That's right. not pizza. That's not what we're trying to do. Everybody's equal. Everybody's fair. Everybody is as equal as... A, a, a human being as the next person. And so when do the lines start usually? Uh, last Saturday, I started at 4.30 and we open at 5.30. So people have been waiting a long time, which I'm super grateful. It's like, that's the the ultimate compliment. Well, um, your vision paid off, man. And your discipline and your rigor paid off. We'll see. We'll see what, what the future holds. You know, I still only have 11 tables and there's nothing... Uh, you know, our prices are still somewhat reasonable i know it doesn't matter to open in the city but you should just open in the city i have no interest you don't no i don't want to stay in new jersey i'm from new jersey i live in new jersey at this point i don't i i looked at a restaurant space last week so you know it's not like i'm but i'm not i'm not i'm not super keen on opening you don't have to be here to be a success i don't think so Right? I mean, he already said it, that your pizza place in New Jersey is the best pizza place in New York. And that's not the ultimate, that's not success to me, is not what other people say. It's how I feel about about the product and about my team. And Do I'm, you feel ready for Anthony to walk in the door? Sure. Yeah. We're making a great product. It's, it's a great product. There it is. Anthony, go in. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, Dan, Richard, thank you. His pizza place is Ratza. It's a, an incredible, I'll say... It is one of the two or, yeah, two best pizzas I've ever eaten. And um, so go there. Go there and wait online. You'll have a good time. It'll be worth it. Dan, thanks for doing this. Are you on any social media? You're on Instagram. Yeah. Under your name? Dan Richer uh, and uh, at Ratsa NJ. Both. Mm-hmm. 
So follow him there. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Same with Instagram. You can also email me, but don't email me asking to get a reservation. He wouldn't even <laughs> give his grandmother one. So don't do that, but you can email me at themomentpk at gmail.com. All right, thanks, everybody. See you next time. At the end of the day, you want to commute home listening to a good podcast, and you want to come home and have a good night's sleep and a great mattress. Pro tip, your budget stretches further when you shop at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. Don't forget, head to mattressfirm.com to learn how you can improve your sleep and save 10% with the code PODCAST10 through May 2nd.